you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah, it's going to be on the screen. Um, but if you'd like to find it in your Bible, um, just go over to the Old Testament. If you don't know where Obadiah is, it is the smallest book in the Old Testament. Uh, you can go to Amos and turn right. If you don't know where Amos is, go to Joel and turn right a little farther. And if you don't know where Joel is, just go to your table of contents and we'll find Obadiah uh, together. I'm going to be preaching through this book of the Bible today, uh, this morning and tonight. Don't get worried. It's not that long. It doesn't even have chapter divisions, so we'll be okay. Um, But this morning, I'm going to be preaching from verses 1 through 14 and talk about false hope. And tonight we'll begin in verse 15, go through verse 21, and we'll talk about true hope. So the book of Obadiah, we'll begin reading in uh, verse uh, number 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Here's what they're saying. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thy heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is no understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother, in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldst not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldst not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldst thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldst thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. Father, help us as we hear your word today. And this is your word to us. As we came in this morning, everyone's heart is in a different condition. Some have soft soil, ready to receive your truth. Others have hardened dirt like a path because they've heard and been exposed to and listened to so many things. They're just not receptive. Others came in prepared 
with shallow soil, and they're going to hear and love and accept what they hear, but in a few days they're going to forget it. Others came in, but distracted, thinking they wanted to hear your word, but it'll be choked out soon by the cares of this world. Father, only your spirit can help prepare our hearts in the way, the way in which they need to be in order to receive your truth. Lord, help us all to have good, soft, fallow ground in our souls so that, they, so that we would hear your word and what it says to us and so that we would respond to it by repenting of our sin and believing in your Son. Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Between 1929 and 1938, France constructed the famous or now infamous Maginot Line. The Maginot Line was built on its border with Germany. Obviously, the memory of the First World War, the Great War, was still on everyone's mind, and France was uh, not going to let this happen again, or so they thought. This line of fortifications, the Maginot Line, had entire fortresses deep underground, hidden artillery, air-conditioned living areas, and even underground railways to transfer supplies across the line. The outer concrete walls that were buried were 11 feet thick, and the structures were 12 or more miles deep into the ground at their lowest point. This defensive line on Germany's border with France was 280 miles long. Despite increasing German aggression, no doubt many French thought that their line was impenetrable, that there's no way the Nazis could ever get across it. But there was one problem. Some of you may be wondering how this didn't affect the war. In fact, some of you may be wondering how France capitulated so quickly if they had something like this. And you may be wondering why you've never heard of it. The reason is quite simple. Germany did not invade France first. They invaded Belgium. And once Germany had Belgium, they walked right into France. (laughs) And so that was the end of the Maginot Line. And, And since then, really, the Maginot Line has been a symbol of misplaced security or a false sense of security, misplaced hope. That is, humans can construct things that they are absolutely certain will help and save them, and yet they fail. They fail. France was not the only nation to embrace a false hope. Edom did the same thing. Now, when we get to the book of Obadiah, if you finally found it, Obadiah is known as One of the minor prophets, it doesn't mean it's less important than books like Isaiah or Jeremiah. It just means it's a small book. But Obadiah's message is anything but minor. In fact, it's quite powerful. He probably preached this orally and then later wrote it down. And he gets this vision from God. It's directed to one of Judah's neighbors, Edom. This is where the Edomites lived. And if that sounds familiar and you've read your Old Testament, you know that these had been enemies of Israel for a while. These are the descendants of Esau, who at one time were a a powerful, powerful foe. They had their own society, their own culture. Back in 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem. And during this Babylonian invasion, the Edomites had a choice. 
they could come to the aid of Judah and help them against the Babylonians. Or they could use this opportunity to plunder Jerusalem after the Babylonians had started the invasion. And they chose the second route, as we know from reading Obadiah. They thought they were being sophisticated, that, that they were taking advantage of this amazing opportunity. The Babylonians are, are going to come in and clean house, but they're not going to take everything. So what they leave behind, the Edomites can come in and get for free. There's an invasion from the Babylonians, and the looting is done by the Edomites. And they thought this was a great idea because they assumed they would never face any consequences from Israel's God for doing this. That's what they thought. But God says differently, and so enter Obadiah's vision. The Edomites thought they could get away with this. They thought they were okay, but it turns out God has another plan for them in mind, and it's not a very happy one. The people of Edom are about to realize just how tragic it can be when you place your hope in the wrong thing. So in verses 1 through 4, we have the announcement of Edom's woe. That is Edom's judgment. Verse 1, it's as if God is, look down in your Bibles at verse 1, it's as if God is overhearing the battle plans of Edom's neighbors. Now, Edom didn't know that their, that their stronger, more powerful neighbors were thinking this way, but God knew. God is overhearing it what their supposed allies are planning. The people surrounding Edom are going to plan an invasion, but this time they're not going to invade Jerusalem. This time they're going to to attack the fortress cities of Edom. This time they won't be looting, they'll be looted. This time they won't watch as helpless victims flee the city. This time they will be the ones fleeing, they will be the ones running away, they'll be the ones with bodies in the streets. But ultimately, this this attack, this attack that's on its way, is not coming just from the surrounding peoples. God is behind it. Look at verse 2. Notice that in verse 2, it is the Lord who's going to use this invasion. And here's what he's going to do with this invasion. He's going to use it to make Edom small. They will be small in the eyes of their neighbors. After they're decimated, after they're attacked, they're going to be small. They thought they were big. They thought they were important. They thought they were stable. And safe from attack. But God sees them as vulnerable. It's the Lord who is judging them. He's just using their neighbors in the process. Look at verses 3 and 4. This gives us some insight into why the Edomites weren't expecting an attack. They thought they were safe. They thought they were okay. 3 and 4 clue us in as to why. They live in the clefts of the rock. They've put their trust in their geography. This was their pride. This was the source of security, their source of hope. And it had blinded them to the possibility that they could ever be hurt. After all, they said, and God is listening into their minds as well as the minds of their neighbors. After all, look at our fortress cities. Look at, look at, look at how safe we are. I mean, look at how secure we are. Other people like the Jews, yep, they're vulnerable. They can get in trouble, likely to be attacked, but not us. We're fine. We're okay. That's what they were telling themselves. John Walton, an Old Testament scholar, notes that Edom was in a really strategic region. This is how they built their cities. They, had, they were dominated by ridges filled with mountainous peaks rising as much as 5,700 feet above sea level. 
They used sharp crags and caves in which their armies could hide. Many, not all, but many of the Edomite cities were located in places like this. They were nearly inaccessible. You don't have drones or planes or helicopters. You had people on foot. It would be very, very hard to attack these cities, but not impossible, it turns out. There's a little poetic sarcasm, if you notice in verse number four. God is talking about how much they overrated themselves. They thought of themselves as if they had built an eagle's nest in the stars. That's really hard to get to, right? But, but God is sort of joking about their, their sense of security. And he tells them, even if you did have an eagle's nest in the stars, I could still get to that. Like, that's not going to stop me. I know you, what you've done to my people, and I know what I'm going to let happen to you, and that's not going to stop me. Even if you had a nest in the stars, God says, I can, I can reach it. I can reach it. Verses 5 and 10 give us more description of Edom's judgment. That is how God is going to judge them. What it's going to look like when they get invaded. It's not pretty. In verses 5 and 6, he tells them their possessions will be taken. And he notes how this is a lot worse than getting robbed. You know, when you get robbed, people don't take, typically, everything. Right? He uses an example of a vineyard. I mean, if they, if they come and steal from your vineyard, um, they, they may want some grapes, but you'll still have a vineyard left over at least, right? If, if people come in and to your house and they, maybe if they find some jewelry or they find some electronic devices or maybe they try to take your TV, they're going to get a lot of stuff, but they're not going to get everything. I mean, they're not going to take the carpet. It would be better for them if they were robbed because of how severe this invasion is going to be. Like, it would be good news if they were just getting robbed, but that's not what's going to happen. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be decimated. They will be shown no mercy. Everything's taken. Everything's ransacked. All the stuff that they thought they had secure, all the stuff they thought was safe, hiding in their caves, it's all going to be gone. All of it. And there will be nothing left. What they took from the Jews would be taken from them. In verse 7, God says that their allies will turn on them. The Edomites thought they were okay, but there's actually going to be a trap that's underneath them that they don't see. And it's going to be set there by people they thought they were in league with. In verse 8, God says their wisdom will fail. It is said that Edom uh, kind of thought of themselves in a similar way to to how we think about Athens. That is, when we think about Athens, you know, we imagine the, uh, the paintings of Aristotle or Plato or Socrates, and we, we talk about how much wisdom they had, how it was a, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, the intellectual life had a place there. They had very wise men that advised their military strategist. Their generals listened to their wise men who seemed to always have great ideas, but their wise men are going to fail. And if I read this right, what God seems to be saying is that their, their, their wise men, their, their leaders, their scholars, their intellectual elites had said, this is a great time to plunder Jerusalem, right? Because the, the way they thought was, if Jerusalem is, is being destroyed by, by Babylon, that means that it must be the Babylonian deities who are the real deal, and Yahweh was just a farce, or if he is real, he's a lot weaker than we thought. Babylon clearly has the upper hand. So plunder Jerusalem and side with the Babylonians. I mean, don't get in the Babylonians' way as they're coming in. We're going to read this a little bit later. No. Stand in the refugees' way as they're trying to get out. Because clearly, 
Babylon has something that Israel doesn't. That's how their wise men appear to have think. But God says, even their wisdom will fail. Their sages will let them down. Their prophecies will be off. They may have thought that these, this class of elites would prevent them from, from bad things happening. They have experts and they get paid a lot of money, so we'll be okay. These other tribes, these other cities, these other countries, they don't have this class of experts like we do, so nothing bad will ever happen to us. But they were wrong. They were wrong. Verse 9 says that even their heroes will be killed. The great warriors of Teman. It's as if he's saying all your Delta Force, all your Navy SEALs, they're going to be scared. They're going to run away. That's how bad this is. The people that their, their culture idolized as brave and, and cunning and, and, and powerful, they're going to be running scared because of how bad this invasion is that's coming. And then in verse 10, God says their downfall will be permanent, will be covered with shame, cut off forever. In other words, there won't be an Edom. And by the way, there's not. There's not. Because of what they've done, they'll be cut off forever. He mentions, by the way, here he brings up Esau. It's as if God is reminding them of their history, reminding them of their kinship with Jacob, reminding them that they weren't totally oblivious to the true God or the promises that he's made to Jacob. It's like they were clued in a little bit, but they were acting as if they didn't know about it. They were acting as if they were just uninformed about who this God was or what he had done for Israel. And he brings up the name of Esau, their ancestor, as if to tell them, Edomites, you know better. You know better. They sinned anyway and their destruction will be permanent. And then verses 11 through 14, we have the indictment of their sins. We get the general idea of what they were doing, but verses 11 through 14 go into more detail in what it looked like for them to refuse to help the Israelites who were on the run. God's announced their woe. He's described their judgment. Now he's going to announce what he is going to uh, that now that he's announced what he's going to do, he's going to give them the full accusation. Now, in our legal system, we're used to the opposite. We're used to accusations, testimony, evidence, and really the, the final thing is always the sentencing. That's how human courts work. And by the way, that's how human courts should work, Right? Because humans are fallible, we don't know everything, and we want to make sure that the evidence and the arguments have been made before there is a decision of guilt and before there is sentencing. But oftentimes, if you read the prophets closely, you'll know that God sometimes announces the judgment first and then gives the laundry list of sins. In other words, here's what I'm going to do to you, and here's what you have done. Now, why is it that so often in the prophets... God works in an opposite way compared to our human legal system. Well, God does it on purpose. And the point is, the reason God can make a sentencing and an accusation of guilt before he gets into the evidence is because God knows the end from the beginning. It's because he's God. Their sentencing has already been decided before their crimes have been brought up because God is the one judging them. This isn't a human judge here. This is the Lord of creation. Their sentencing is already set in stone before their crimes are mentioned. But now in verses 11 through 14, we have a little bit more clarity on what they were doing. In verses, in verse 11, God accuses them of acting like foreigners toward Judah. 
Well, they weren't foreigners. They were related, but they were acting as if they were foreigners. So they stood afar off. They were on the other side of the battle, watching. On the other side of the conflict, relishing what was happening to their neighbors and their kin. The Babylonian siege, it seems, was 18 months long. They had a year and a half, and they did nothing to help. Not only did they not fight, they didn't even help the refugees who were running away from the fight. The Edomites are like vultures circling uh, circling a dying animal, waiting for the moment to strike, and the moment would come. In verse 12, God accuses them of also rejoicing over Judah's destruction. Now, this was a cause for sorrow. And yes, God sent the Babylonians to Judah, but he did that because of their idolatry, to their un- because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant God had given them. This was a sorrowful thing for anyone who is familiar with the promises of God. And the Edomites knew about the promises of God. They should have been weeping as they saw how God was judging his people for their unfaithfulness. But instead, instead, they rejoice. It says in verse 12. Verse 13, accuses, God accuses them of looting Judah's wealth. This was simply a chance for them, like they looked at this only opportunistically, not spiritually. This was just a chance for them to make themselves rich. And they never imagined what they did to others would one day be done to them. Then in verse 14, God accuses them of this, selling fugitives into slavery. Again, they could have helped their distant relatives escape, but instead of doing that, they tried to make money by selling them as human property. So this is God's judgment on Edom. So what's the point of all this? Why are we talking about this on a Sunday morning? I mean, maybe you're thinking, this is not why I came to church. This is all pretty sad. And maybe you've even lost your appetite for lunch. Why is this in the Bible? Obadiah's vision is a wake-up call to the nation of Edom, but more than that, to any of his readers who are possessed with false hope. People who put their trust in things that won't save them. People finding their security in all the wrong places. People that are in danger from God, but think that they are safe from God. That's who Obadiah is speaking and writing to. After all, the Edomites thought they have their cities in the mountains. So even if Yahweh comes after us, we can always hide. We always have a place to go. It's inaccessible. We we know we've done some really bad things, but it's okay. Have you seen our cool fortress cities? And that's what their hope was in. But then Obadiah comes on the scene. He says, "I I have a vision from the Lord, Edom. I want you to know... God knows what you've done, you're not safe from him, and you have made yourself God's enemies. The people of the mountain cities of Edom made a serious mistake. You see, by underestimating God, they assumed they were safest from his judgment, when in reality, they were most vulnerable to his judgment. It was their false sense of hope, their false sense of security, They're thinking that they could get away from God and from the consequences of their sin that made themselves vulnerable to the God they thought they were escaping from. So here's the message then of Obadiah 1 to 14. 
And this applies not only to the Edomites, but it applies to us. That nothing in this world that promises security can protect sinners from God's judgment. Nothing in this world that promises security can protect sinners from God's judgment. Edom had a false hope in something they thought would protect them, but it failed. Mark Dever writes, uh, commenting on the book of Obadiah, that the hearts of the Edomites were well symbolized by their geography. They were high and hard, certain and proud. They thought they could see and survey all the surrounding country because of their position, but they couldn't see themselves and they couldn't see God. Such a vantage point that they had, right? But they couldn't see judgment coming, no matter how good their vantage point was. And neither will we. What they banked everything on failed them when it mattered most. Because here's the thing, when it came time, in God's timing, for the Lord to confront their sin, what they thought was impenetrable really wasn't. It really wasn't. So here's the lesson for us, and whatever in this life promises us ultimate security, whatever cries out to you, put your trust here, find your safety here, it is a false hope. Nothing in this world that promises security can protect sinners from God's judgment. Now, I hope you see, friend, how this has quite a bit to do with us. This has quite a bit to do with us. The Edomites thought that despite what they had done to God, they could be safe from God because of their cliff cities. But the Edomite story involves more characters than just the Edomites. Because this is not a lone incident in the Bible of people rebelling against God and thinking they are okay. This story is old as the fall itself. Adam and Eve running and hiding from God. They feel ashamed. Because that's what sin does. Sin brings into this world the feelings of guilt and shame. And those aren't necessarily bad things. We have whole industries that are created to make people feel better about their guilt and shame. Adam and Eve try to escape their guilt and shame. They make garments for themselves. They go hide in the trees, but it doesn't work. And the Edomites are doing the same thing. God is after us, but it's okay. Look where we have to hide. And we think the same way. We live our lives in opposition to God. Every person in here has been born a sinner. That doesn't just mean at some point in your life you started to do bad things. It means your heart... The wiring has been messed up in your soul and you desire things that displease God and you hate things that God loves. And all of your behavior and actions and thoughts and deeds flow out of that messed up heart. Jesus' indictment of us is not that we've got ourselves contaminated from the outside. No, Jesus goes through the laundry list of sins and says all these things come from the heart. When it comes to what's wrong with the world, the answer is that we are. Our sin is. We live this life, this whole life, in opposition to God. And even in our good deeds, we do good deeds thinking that we can do them without God and without a relationship with him. And even in those good deeds, we have pride and, yes, sin. So whether you consider yourself a pretty good person or a pretty bad person, as long as you're living this life independent from God, your whole life is defined and stamped by sin. And so is mine outside of Christ. 
We have our own mountain, mountain fortresses that we run to. Our own hideouts, our own caves. They're way up in the mountains. They're way up in the peaks. We think, God will never get me here. But there's coming a day when we will have to give an account for how we've lived. God's made you to answer to him. And one day, friend, you will. We can find hope in all kinds of things. We can find our security in all kinds of things. People have troubled lives, and so they want to project an image of a put-together life, and they use social media to do that. Social media is a great tool primarily for getting other people to think what we want them to think about us. Of course, the issue with that is, no matter how much confidence and security and feeling of safety we get from our appearance that we give, God knows who we really are. You can fake other, you can, you can, uh, uh, you can pull it over other people, you can pull it over uh, this church, you can pull it over the, the staff of this church, our pastor, but God is not fooled when you pretend to be something you aren't. You may feel very safe. No one's accused me of anything. No one knows I'm a jerk in this way or that way. No one knows that I've done this or this, but God knows. That's a false sense of security. It's a terrible place to find hope in. It may not be your appearance. It may be your accomplishments. Yes, you struggle with guilt and shame, and you know that you need a relationship with God, and you know one day you're going to stand before your creator, and the way that you've decided to deal with that is to try to live an accomplished life. And you have a nice home, and you have great accolades, and you get promotions at work, and people uh, that, uh, that you serve with on uh, boards in town, they like you, and they think you're an upstanding person, and your lawn is green, and your car doesn't have scratches on it, and you feel accomplished to the point that, it, that you think, you think God's okay with you too. But that's not how it works. That's not how it works. It could be your material wealth. You have a lot of money. You have good investments. The bad economy may destroy others, and you've taken a hit, but you're still doing really, really well. You've saved for the future. So when you think about the future, you feel good about it. All these things can be good things. It's not bad to have a good appearance. You don't have to, people don't have to hate you, right? It's good to have a good appearance. It's okay to have accomplishments. It's good to have accomplishments. And it's okay to have money. It's somewhat useful to have money. But if these become our mountain fortresses, if these are the places we run to to feel good about ourselves instead of the grace of God, then these things will destroy us. You know, you could have a mountain fortress in religious garb. Now, I tried to cover all the bases. I welcomed all of you today, and I meant what I said. We are glad that you're here, no matter why you're here. But you could be here. You could come to church just in order to feel better about yourself. In fact, some of you are under the assumption that's what church is. And I don't want to blame you for having that assumption, because you may you've may been to churches that aren't much more than this. That's sort of like a chicken soup for the soul with a steeple on it. I go in here and I feel good about myself and I can go home and do whatever I want to do the next six days. That's not what we're doing here. (laughs) No. No. 
Now, we have positive feelings when we worship sometimes. We have positive feelings as we hear God's grace declared to us. But you may have a mountain fortress in religious garb if you deal with your sin and your guilt by going through religious things and not really receiving God's forgiveness for what you've done. God can't get me. I'm okay up here in my mountain city. I got baptized. I prayed some prayer somewhere. I've confessed my sins to somebody. I go to church. I've taken communion. I teach my kids about the Bible. So, yeah, God can't get me for my sins. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Those are all wonderful things. And yet, if that is where our hope is found, our hope will disappoint us in terrible ways. Let me just ask you this. What is it in your life right now that you assume will last as long as you do? What if it doesn't? Have you ever thought about that? What if it doesn't? Because it didn't for them. And it may not for you. Obadiah calls out to us to tell us that there's only futility in making anything your final security other than God himself. And friends, that is why the gospel is such good news. The gospel does not tell us everything's okay. Jesus did not come to tell us, you are okay, everything's good to go, don't worry about the future, I am nice, so God will love you. Oh no, God does love us, but he loves us way more than that. And there was only one person who ever lived that did not deserve God's judgment. There was only one person who ever lived who didn't have to worry about hiding from God, and it was Jesus. And he took God's wrath willingly for you in his death on the cross and for me. Jesus is the only one who's ever lived who didn't have to worry about running away from God's judgment, but he took it on himself so that you and I can find a true source of peace and safety. I was talking to um, a church member this week who was, we were having a conversation about a struggle with his, with a a particular sin, and, um, and this person told me that one of the temptations surrounding this sin was that it provided a sense of relief. And then we, we talked about how sometimes our sin can mimic God. That is, God provides us with safety, God provides us with security, God provides us with peace and hope, and sometimes sins masquerade as if they can give us those things. But they don't. They don't. The gospel is the true source of peace and safety. Our suffering and resurrected Messiah is a true source of peace and safety. Why? Because only God can provide through Christ what all these other things in our lives claim to provide. Only God can provide true security and true hope in a world surrounded by false advertising and spiritual propaganda that many of us fall for on a regular basis. See, God not only reveals the empty promises of our mountain fortresses that we run to, God has better promises. Because the message of Obadiah is not, or the message of the Bible is not, that there's no peace and safety from God. 
Rather, it is this. The only peace and safety from God and from his judgment is found in God himself, in his offer of grace to us. So this message cuts two ways. If you are an unbeliever, you've not yet started following Jesus, and you're trying to deal with the fear of facing God in any other way outside of Christ, then you need to know that that will not work. God will find you wherever you hide. However high the mountain fortress is, however high the peak is, God knows how to get to where you are, and he will. But if you are a Christian, if you are following Jesus, then it is possible for us to forget how the Bible calls us to deal with our daily sin. The Bible tells us to confess it to God and receive his forgiveness. In fact, the mark of those who have been, as John says, the mark of those who have been cleansed from all unrighteousness is that they regularly confess their sins to God. And it is remarkable, is it not, that even us as believers know that nothing else in this life will make us feel better about our sin, and yet we run to those things over and over and over again instead of running to Christ. Whether you're not a Christian or you are a Christian, the answer is the same. That the only way to find true peace and true safety and true security, whether that's from God's judgment if you're not a Christian or from God's discipline if you are a Christian, the only place to find that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, I'm going to ask you to come forward and pray in just a moment. And I'm going to ask you, to confess whatever it is to God that you've been trying to deal with on your own. I'm going to ask you to confess to God whatever you've been hiding. And maybe some of you need to confess what you've been trusting in. And if you're not a Christian, I'd invite you to, uh, you could come forward and talk to somebody. We'll have pastor sit at the front. Um, We also have a card that's right in front of you in whatever chair you're sitting in. You'll see these cards. You can fill that out and mark believe. And all that means is you're interested. It doesn't mean you have to believe. It just means you're interested in knowing more about what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus. And I'd love to follow up with you and talk to you about that. If our ultimate and final sense of security comes from Christ, then we can rest no matter what, including no matter what happens to us in this life. But if our hope is in anything else, one day we will meet God. And it will be too late to find our hope in his grace. Let's all stand as... uh